Comics. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale December 22nd, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, let's get into Spider-Man No Way Home spoilers right now. That's what we're changing the show up to be. No, we're not going to do that. That's all right. Everything's all right. Everything's great, including all the comics we're going to talk about. We have three picks for you. Then we're going to get through 17 other comics for a total of 20 comics this week. It's a big one. Then we're going to talk about the Infinity Comics hitting Marvel Unlimited, as well as the other books hitting MU and the collections. And we're doing something a little bit different with our reading club this week. Tucker, what is it? This week, we are diving into Hawkeye by Matt Fraction and David Aha. We will be revisiting our discussions with writer Joanna Robinson, who you know from podcasts and writing online. Really, really wonderful stuff. We're breaking down Hawkeye with her. So we're going to be analyzing one of the best series ever from all angles this week in our reading club. Heck yeah. But before we get into all that, it is time for our picks of the week. And we're going to start things off with Avengers Forever number one. Give me the Aaron and Aaron team up I always wanted and have already gotten at least once this year because we've got this issue written by Jason Aaron with art by Aaron Cooter, as well as Cam Smith, Jason Keith and Triona Farrell, letters by VCs Corey Pettit. It rules so, so hard. If you are just going into Avengers Forever without having read anything else, you're going to get a cool story, bleak, gnarly, multiversal stuff. But if you have checked out, say, the free comic book day Avengers story and have read Avengers number 750, aka number 50, and maybe also read Avengers number 51 this week, you are getting an even bigger, cooler picture of all things going on and all the the Avengers-y stuff that Jason Aaron is putting together right now. This issue opens up on Earth 818 in the year 1 million BCE as a basically skinned alive, bloody, emaciated Odin crawls to Mjolnir and puts this magical inscription on the hammer that said, whosoever holds this hammer, if they be worthy, shall possess the power of all vengeance. The story title for this arc for the first couple of issues is The Lords of Earthly Vengeance. And it's badass. I love alternate reality stories or multiversal stories, I guess we should call them. And here we then, you know, jump into the present day on this earth. And you've got this Ant-Man in here who is Tony Stark in this world. And there's these venomized ants and wild, weird, very different stuff. You got Aaron Cooter's art, which always a huge hit here for Tucker and I. He gets to draw badass Ghost Rider stuff as Robbie Reyes finds himself on this world. The big bad here in this issue is the Black Skull. And this character, the Black Skull, is tied to some villains that are showing up in Avengers this week that have shown up in Avengers number 750 that have shown up in the free comic book day issue. So it's all tied together, giving you that bigger, bigger story. So if you do read everything, you get this really cool picture. If you're not, You're just still getting a freaking awesome comic that sets up a really great world that is bleak and weird and has amazing things in store for us. And if you are a fan of Jason Aaron's Thor run, there's also a little bit in here right towards the end, which dives right back into some characters that we came to love during the time that Jason was writing Thor. So there's so much to love about this. I knew I was going to love it and it crushed it fully for me. 100%. 
The first one that I'm talking about is Wolverine number 19, which is my pick this week. And boy, oh boy, that cover by Adam Kubert and Frank Martin. It is a really, really, really unique, sort of like pencil-driven cover. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. And Wolverine's been busy lately. He's been on the high seas for various reasons in X-Force business and now obviously in the pages of Wolverine. And in this issue, we get some of the best visualization, I think, of a really fascinating ocean set story. So you have everything obviously going on above the surface, and then you have everything going on underneath the surface. And then beyond that, you have everything going on way, way down deep in the depths of the waters around the island of Krakoa. This issue is written by Benjamin Percy with art by Javi Fernandez alongside Matthew Wilson and letterer VCs Corey Pettit. This is a monster story in both a very specific Wolverine way, but I also feel like in a very specific Benjamin Percy way. This is one of those issues where you look at it and you go, well, this is exactly how this story is supposed to go. This is how this book is supposed to look. This is how it's supposed to feel. The way that Javi and Matt use the color black in this issue, I mean, is really gorgeous. The way they use negative space as you follow Wolverine down into the depths of the ocean, the way that Ben Percy's narration follows along and tells that story, which is really fascinating. And I think really overall adds to that Ben Percy feeling of the story um, because you kind of have this separation. You have a little bit of a Greek chorus type thing going on where you're watching all of this action, but you have this somewhat serene narration that's going on over top of it. At times they line up really wonderfully in terms of tone and other times they're just juxtaposed so beautifully. The way that it ends, I just adore. It is so pure Wolverine. Ryan, before we started recording, you said that the text page at the end of this issue is the best line in the entire book, and I do not disagree with you, and I don't also want to spoil that for, for readers out there. So go pick this one up. It's just another in the line of incredible Wolverine stories and the line of incredible mutant stories that we have going on right now. It's just great stuff. All right. We have one more big pick this week, and it is King Conan number one. It is the return of writer Jason Aaron and artist Mahmoud Asrar back to Conan and also with Matthew Wilson on most of the colors on this issue. Mahmoud actually colors a couple of these pages himself, but Jason Mahmoud and Matthew coming together to do more Conan stories makes me really happy and joined by VC's Travis Lanham on the letters. This is a story about an older Conan in the, the Robert E. Howard sort of lore of Conan's life. He goes from young barbarian leaving Samaria to traveling the world and getting into adventures and, and horrors and monsters and love and pillaging and pirating and all kinds of stuff, but eventually getting the throne and becoming king. And this actually is a story based on that idea and some things that Robert E. Howard never got to fully flush out. So it, it allows Jason and Mahmoud and the team to create new Conan stories that feel like they could have been adaptations. Jason, of course, is a master of titling things in wonderful ways. So the name of this arc is Conan's Last Stand at the Edge of the World. Part one is this issue on maggot-infested waves. Just tremendous. Conan washes up, graying a little bit, still big and terrifying and, and powerful. Uh, he washes up on these shores in a really strange place 
there's tons of bodies and, and carrion birds and, and all these things. And he catches a blade that is a snake and thus begins to unravel the mystery a little bit of what's going on. He sees his foe and it is something that is a very full circle moment, brings back a lot of things that have been going on, a lot of stories that Jason and Mahmood and the team have been telling and bring back, you know, one of Conan's most fearsome enemies. And this is a battle in here where it is brutal. There's also sequences in here where we flash back into different parts of Conan's life. And it's really wonderfully paced. So you're, you're in the midst of this fight and you get to see, like, feel what Conan feels. I think it's really well done. But ultimately, Conan is not just a barbarian, even though people always think he is. He fights with vicious, vicious power and strategy and he's really smart about it which is why he survived so long but things just get weirder and weirder and he has a lot of questions and i think it's a great introductory issue to this storyline it's a blast it is big and fearsome and anytime jason aaron writes conan i am 110 percent there absolutely we will be moving on now from our picks to that's right, 17 new Marvel mags headed your way this December 22nd. And, you know, I was thinking for the awards that will be given out for each of these mags, I was thinking 17, something something of 17. I think we're just going to go lucky number 17 because there is so much on offer this week. And the first one is the Amazing Spider-Man number 82. Who are we visiting with in this ish but one Peter Parker? And not just talking about his ailments from issues past, but there are new threats upon him. I'll leave it there. But I will give my lucky number 17 award to an interaction I had at uh, my local comic shop this past week. We I was in there just checking out some mags, and I got talking to somebody who was picking up an issue of Amazing Spider-Man. We had a great chat about all the stuff going on, uh, and it just makes me so happy to go out there and get to talk to big-time comic book fans and people who are also as excited in particular about Beyond as I am. Hell yeah. All right, we've got Avengers number 51 Jason Aaron, writing some good-ass titles this week. This one is called A Dark Phoenix Rises Over Asgard, which is kind of pretty much what happens in this, <laughs> and you get a big Asgard battle. Uh, it opens with Thor just being kind of pissed off about revelations and things going on and where he is in life, and artist Juan Fergari draws a hell of a Thor shirtless just punching something, and it only escalates from here. Uh, you've got Echo, who is the new Phoenix in here. She's got some stuff to go on with Thor, but it's just this cool, like, beginning stage of a giant battle because we've got this new team of basically world destroyers who come to Earth 616 with desire to kill, plunder, destroy, murder the Avengers, and they've got the tools for it. And my lucky number 17 award for Avengers uh, goes to that shirtless, wonderful, buff, abtastic Odinson. <laughs> Just, it looks so good. Juan for Gary, crushing it. Now we are on to our third Avengers titled mag this week with Avengers Tech On number five, aka Speedline Central. So much action, nonstop kinetic fun in this 
I was looking at this and, and going, wow, you know what? I really, really like the colors on this art. Who's the colorist? Who's the colorist? Um, I want to shout out the colors. But of course, Jeffrey Chamba Cruz is not just providing the colors. He's providing the inks and the pencils as well. He does it all. So what can I do but shout out for my lucky number 17 award, Chamba, because there is just beautiful, beautiful stuff going on in this one. Oh, yeah. All right. We've got Black Panther number two this week. Man, we are blessed by amazing creators. And here, you know, we're getting a new issue of art by Juan Cabal, who is a stormbreaker for us, but is continuing to elevate their game and do some really fun stuff. There's panel layouts, and there's one panel in here that I particularly like love. There's these assassins who are going after Black Panther's sleeper agents. T'Challa has these sleeper agents, and they have assassins who have discovered their secrets and going after them. And there's this panel where they've really taken it to one of the agents. And then the assassin is going to kill the agent's family. And it's this heartbreaking series of panels where the agent is like mortally wounded. There's this panel of the assassin with the blade held high and the dad holding the kid. And the next panel, it's a giant letters N O O O in the background, uh, the sleeper agent screaming, and it's so visceral and it's just so well done, so well paced. Um, the entire thing, I think I, that's what I'm going to give my lucky number 17 award to is just this comic just does such a great job of evoking emotion and really like hitting you with the feelings that it's trying to evoke, which obviously that's what we're trying to do with our comics, but sometimes it works better than others, and I think it works really, really well here. Yes, and now mixed up, wowie, some really dark, powerful, emotional, and really unexpected stuff, even for an issue titled Darkhold. This is Darkhold Spider-Man number one. Huge kudos to writer Alex Pacanadel, who I think totally delivers on this. This issue, though, I want to give my uh, lucky number 17 award to artist Dio Neves because there is beautiful stuff in here that I think is simultaneously just so well composed, also has great web-slinging stuff in it, also has really dark, terrifying stuff in it, also uh, has like great monster action in here. Next up, we will be looking towards the finale of this Darkhold set of stories, which I've been a huge fan of with the Darkhold Omega, uh, which will be coming soon. But another big, big story here with Darkhold Spider-Man. Heck yeah. All right, we have Hawkeye Kate Bishop, number two this week. Uh, you've got Kate at a fancy resort trying to solve a mystery. She's hanging out with her sister that she's kind of estranged from. There's weird clown stuff going on. I will give my lucky number 17 award to the mystery here because uh, it's got me scratching my head trying to figure out who's behind everything. I have a lot of thoughts, but I don't know the answer, and I love that. It's got me wondering where they're going with it and, and who Kate is really up against. All right, next up we have Iron Man number 15. You have the iconic Iron Man suit in here. You're looking at it, but if, even if you're just flipping through, you're going, wow, I don't know if I've ever seen an Iron Man story look like this before. But I think it's something that's been really earned over the course of these 15 issues, going back to issue one when it comes to Korvac. That's a character that's played a huge, huge role over the course of these 15 issues, and uh, it really comes to a head here. And it's just beautiful. Ibrahim Roberson brings the art to us on this one. Just 
absolutely stunning work in here alongside one of the best colorists around, Frank D'Armada. Truly, truly, even if you haven't been following along with what's been going on in Iron Man, if you're at your local comic shop, I'm telling you, pick this one off the shelf. At least give it a look because I think it might pull you in. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous story. We got the final issue of Kang the Conqueror this week, which I don't want to spoil anything, but it does feel like a great way to wrap up the title. Got to give major shout outs to cover artist Mike Del Mundo, one of the best in the game. His cover here with this like time melting sort of Dali-esque cover going on. It's amazing and incredible. I will give my lucky number 17 award to this big two page splash that comes near the end of the book of Kang just standing amidst the uh, destruction of the dinosaurs. It is a beautiful shot drawn by Carlos Magno. Kang looks so cool and a little sassy, but full of attitude. It's uh, it's rad. Yes, definitely read. And next up, we are moving on to Moon Knight number six. These six issues, I feel like so much story has been packed in here. It's a very, very specific angle on this character that I've been really enjoying. But I think looking at this issue in particular, what Jed has really excelled at is not just showing you Mark Spector and the various personalities, the various personas, the various iterations of Moon Knight, not just showing you that as spectacle, but putting you inside that character's head, in his mind, from his point of view, just embracing the very nature of who this character is has been a really, really excellent angle on a Moon Knight story. So it's that very specific narrative angle that Jed has woven as the great writer he is that I give my lucky number 17 award to this week. Yeah. All right, we've got a debut here with Ms. Marvel Beyond the Limit number one, and it's the first Marvel Comics work, maybe first comics work for Samira Ahmed, the writer of this issue. Um, my wife actually knows her. Samira is a YA author of, of much renown. She has some cool books and different projects out there. And we get new art by Marvel's pollist fave, Andres Genolet, who was on Runaways for a while. So it's real cool. We get to see Kamala out of Jersey City in a new setting, meet some more of her family, get in and do some stuff. She's in Chicago. I will give my lucky number 17 award to some multiversal things that happen in here. I don't want to give too much away, but there's some really cool, there's a bunch of panels and pages and different things. I was like, what, who, where, when? Give it to me now. Next up, we have Phoenix Song Echo number three. This is really fun and really exciting because it's simultaneously a sort of a time jumping reality, almost reality jumping story, but it's also a Western in a lot of ways. I think it's just such a fresh perspective on not just this character, but on the Marvel Universe. I think it's so wonderful. It's really well-written by Rebecca Roanhorse. You also get that feeling that you're reading a story about the Phoenix. You know, it's an Echo story, but it's also a Phoenix story in a really, really big way. You never, ever lose sight of that, which I think is so important. You know, I think this book is is really, really building up some momentum. It's been really, really a, a delightful read. Yeah. Speaking of delightful reads, we've got Sword number 11 this week, and man, this book keeps you on your toes in all the best ways. Al Ewing, we know he's got plans within plans, but man, there's some stuff in here I was like, 
damn it, Al, what are you doing? There's amazing moments in here with Storm and Abigail Brand and Cable and Manifold. I will say I will give my lucky number 17 award to Agent Abigail Brand in here, who I think this is like this, you can sort of hear some big music come up and swell at a certain point in this issue where she's talking to someone and like things are going on and you're like, oh, this is just like step two of 15. And I'm excited to see all those steps and how it all shakes out. Yes, now we are diving into Star Wars with Star Wars Darth Vader number 19 up first. I am just endlessly fascinated by this story that Greg Pak has been telling so wonderfully. He's sourcing so many very specific scenes from throughout Darth Vader history and plucking them out and then presenting them to us alongside action in the present day for Darth Vader. I just think it's so wonderful. In this case, there is a particular emphasis on that scene from Attack of the Clones where Anakin and Padme are off. Essentially, they're on Naboo. They're like having a picnic and uh, having some political and philosophical discussions, seeing how it all just weaves together so masterfully by one of the best writers that we are lucky enough to have at the House of Ideas, Greg Pak, is just wonderful, wonderful stuff. I literally look forward to each individual issue of Darth Vader, not just for the story, but for where are we going to go now? What are we going to touch on in Darth Vader history now? It's just great stuff. Another wonderful issue of Darth Vader for me. Yeah. All right, we've got another Star Wars book this week with Star Wars The High Republic Trail of Shadows number three. Big shout out to artist David Wachter, who continues to elevate and get better and better every friggin' issue. I do want to give my lucky number 17 award, though, to a little interaction that happens towards the end of the book. It's not about lightsabers or force powers or the big mystery that's going on and the search for the Nile and everything that, that has been sort of surrounding this issue. It's a conversation between a Jedi and the Jedi's sort of companion on this mission, who's not a Jedi. And the Jedi is talking about having feelings and emotions and stuff. And the Jedi says, yes, we don't let our emotions rule us, but that doesn't mean we don't feel them. Yes, I am afraid for myself, for my loved ones. Yes, I am Jedi. But yes, I am also. And then he he gets a hug and he says, ah, human. And I thought that was such a great exploration of what it can mean to be a Jedi. Yeah, it was a really sweet, beautiful section of the book. All right, we've got Venom number three this week, which there's a ton of variants for Venom. It's a a wild week of amazing art all throughout. Uh, And speaking of amazing art, we've got Brian Hitch in this issue. So damn good and so incredible. Uh, this one is cool. This is a, uh, a Ram V written issue, which means we are focused on Dylan Brock as opposed to the Al Ewing issues, which focus on Eddie Brock. And Dylan is getting himself in all kinds of trouble. He's got the sleeper symbiote with him. He's got the Venom symbiote with him. But still, he gets into all kinds of trouble in here. I won't say where it goes for him. There's a really cool thing that he's going to be up against in future issues. I guess it's a theme for me. I love multiversal glimpses into other things. And there's one in here where Dylan can sort of see what could be. And he's got this view of what was. And um, it's the Venom symbiote thinking about the past, the present, the future, its place in, in all reality. And I think that's a it's a really cool spread in the midst of everything that's gone on for Venom and for the symbiotes in the last year or so. 
Yes, now I will be wrapping things up this week. First with Wastelanders Hawkeye number one. This issue, I think it's important to note, takes place after Old Man Hawkeye number 12 and before the original Old Man Logan. This issue, though, I think as crucial an element to this story as we can get is not just everything going on in the story, the relationships there, but the relationship that writer Ethan Sachs has with this character because honestly – Nobody does it like Ethan. There is something special. There's a little bit of magic when it comes to Ethan Sachs writing Old Man Hawkeye. What's crucial to this story is not just what's going on with Clint at this point in time, but what's going on between Clint and one Matthew Murdoch. In this issue, we get to see Matt Murdoch take on essentially the role of Stick and mentor Hawkeye and show him how to be an effective fighter, an effective hero, an effective person in a new way. That relationship is so wonderful. We also get Kane Marco in here. We get some great laughs. We get one or two other characters that were a surprise and really exciting to see pop up. Gotta add, Ibrahim Roberson again in here, crushing it. Big week for Ibrahim. I love it so, so much. But now, I am finishing this week with X-Men, The Trial of Magneto, number five. This is the finale of what has been a really exciting series. I've just loved the work that Leah Williams and Lucas Warnick have been doing in here. I'm just such a huge fan of them both. This issue, I, I love it because it feels like this huge, cacophonous, chaotic story that exploded out of issue one is just so perfectly collapsed down into this storybook, close the book, get everything you wanted, so many payoffs, so many resolutions, other questions still looming, certainly at least when it comes to the Scarlet Witch, but I just love how carefully planned this whole story really felt. Seeing how Leah managed it all when it comes to Wanda, when it comes to Magneto, when it comes to so many other characters, great North Star scene in here as well, and some other Leah Williams favorites. It's just a really a wonder. It's excellent stuff. I really, really can't say enough about the feeling that this gave me to read it. Then there's also just the pure emotional side of it. And obviously when it comes to the X-Men, obviously when it comes to these characters and the years that have been baked into this tale, there's a lot of emotion to go around. There's a lot to deal with. Uh, Just kudos and a huge shout out to everybody involved. I really, really loved this series. It's been wonderful, wonderful stuff. Now, phew. That's what we have for our 17 Marvel mags this week. <laughs> well, 20, oh. we're counting our picks. You're so right. When it comes to all 20 new Marvel mags, I think some really, really excellent stuff. It's a great week. Now I'm looking over towards Infinity Comics. If those 20 issues weren't enough, we have more on the Marvel Unlimited app for you. This week, we have three new ones coming in the medium of Infinity Comics, X-Men Unlimited, Spine Tingling, Spider-Man and Spider-Bot. Yeah. And also hitting Marvel Unlimited this week, a ton of regular issues, including an issue of Black Widow, which is one of our favorites, Eternals, Thanos Rises, a humdinger of an issue, the second issue of Kang the Conqueror, some Marauders in there, Last Annihilation, Wakanda, number one, which uh, was definitely a big one for us, Mighty Valkyries, number five. It's a great week on MU. So go check it all out at marvel.com slash unlimited if you are not already subscribed. 
Now wrapping things up with new releases this week. Some new collections hitting shelves. Star Wars Darth Vader by Greg Pak, Volume 3. War of the Bounty Hunters is in there. That is not just an excellent Darth Vader story. It's a great crossover story. So much to love when it comes to the best villain in history in Marvel Comics. Uh, Now we are looking from new releases to... Hawkeye hit the target with us alongside Joanna Robinson as we revisit 2012's Hawkeye by Matt Fraction and David Aha. So let's dive into that right now. Joanna Robinson, thank you so much for talking to us today. I actually can't believe that it's taken this long for someone to request that we read what is now, without a doubt, a modern classic. So first of all, welcome to the show. And second of all, can you talk about your past and your experience with Hawkeye? Yeah, Hawkeye was my introduction to Marvel Comics. Growing up, I was not a comics reader. I was, you know, what you might call a geek or a nerd in all other spheres, but I just couldn't get into comics and I didn't know what it was and it frustrated me. Because all of my friends were into comics and I wanted to be in on that conversation every time I tried to sit down and read a comic. There's something about the format that just like I couldn't lock into the story. And then when I was in my early 20s, I think mid 20s, something like that, my best friend handed me a couple comics. And then this is going to sound so typical, but a guy I was dating made it his mission, (laughs) but he was so smart and great about it because I think there are ways in which you can push comics on people that will just send them running in the other direction, right? But he was like precise, like precision. First thing he did was send me a podcast that Kelly Sue DeConnick was on. And I just got obsessed with Kelly Sue and listening to her talk about her Captain Marvel run was incredible. And then he sent me this great article interview that that Mo Ryan did. And I was a huge Mo Ryan fan. Uh, and he sent me an article that she did on this Hawkeye run. And that is what compelled me to pick it up. And then I was just hooked all the way into this run of comics. I just reread the article. I was like, what did Mo do to ensorcel <laughs> me? But like the thing that I've since discovered is you can have comics that feel like comics and comics that feel like films. And this is a rare comic that feels like a TV show. And since I write about television and film for a living and mostly about television at that time, this just really hooked me in as something that felt like a great like FX series. I was a huge Justified fan. It just like felt like that. So that's what got me into Hawkeye. Here I am. That is such a good explanation of this. And I feel like (laughs) that truly, I've never heard anyone describe this series that way, but that is so concisely put like someone who writes about this kind of stuff for a living. (laughs) So I guess one of the big takeaways here is, folks, if you're going to try and get your significant other into comics, pick a good comic. (laughs) Pick one that's really good. (laughs) It helps. It helps. Have good, strong taste in comics, please. Yeah. I will say another thing that really convinced me that comics were for me was the Ryan North Squirrel Girl mm-hmm. run. Huge hook for me. And then just goes from there. And as you know, you know, once you're into the Marvel world, there's so many little hooks that'll pull you off into another direction and you want to follow a character. Or for me, most often, I want to follow a creator, an artist that I love or a writer that I love. And what are they doing next? And what are they interested in? And then I'm going to be interested in that character. 
in that vein, where did you go from here? Were you like, oh, I want to read more of what Matt's writing or I want to see what David has done? Did you go and like find Immortal Iron Fist after this to see where they were beforehand? You know, what was that path? Yeah, I, I read the Iron Fist run and then I was I was interested in the Kate Bishop origin. So I followed Kate Bishop over and some other stuff. And basically Matt Fraction is the kind of creator and, and the combination with David Art is... I think him at his best, but Matt Fraction is the kind of creator and, and Kelly Sue also that I will follow anywhere, like whatever they're doing. I want to read it. Could we go back a little bit? This is something that I often ask writers and artists that we have on the show, but I am super curious to hear about your background as someone who came up in the world of magazines and print. Your work is something that is deeply interesting to me and I'm a big fan. So I was curious to hear about if you had any sort of touchstones that related to this genre, or if you were coming to it from the angle of, oh, this reminds me of a great TV show that I would love, leading to that very moment where you said you you first picked up this book. Well, I mean, I'm familiar. I was familiar with Marvel, of course, because as most kids of my generation that you will talk to will say, I watched the X-Men animated series. And so I was familiar with that world. And then I am a big film and television person. So I was into all of the Marvel films that were out there even before the MCU launched. So I was familiar with the world of Marvel before I launched into this series. And what's interesting about this series, the Clint Barton in this book is far away from the Clint Barton that we meet in the MCU and gets even further as sort of the MCU goes on. But it was interesting to me that reading the author letter in the back of the first issue, they reference the first Avengers film and they're like, surely you've met Clint in the Avengers film by now. And if that's why you're here, we're so glad you're here. Or surely you've liked Clint in other stories. And if that's why you're here, we're so glad you're here. And surely if you've never read a comic book before in your life, we're going to try to, you know, it's like it knows what it's doing in terms of being an ambassador for comics in terms of just opening the doors and welcoming anyone to meet the story where it is. But I think my interest in mythologies, the first like really complicated interconnected universe I got into that I can remember off the top of my head are the Dragonlance books. I don't know if you guys read those, but I was I know really, yeah, I was really into the Dragonlance books as a kid and Star Wars, Star Trek, Lord of the Rings, et cetera, et cetera, all the ticking all the boxes uh, leading up to this. It baffled all of my friends that I wasn't into <laughs> comics because they were and I wasn't. And I I was like, I don't know what to tell you. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing is like sometimes it just takes the right book, the right person, the right time in your life to make that connection. And I, I love that. I mean, if somebody wants to get into comics when they're 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, it doesn't matter. Just enjoy right. the comics. <laughs> I, I'm glad at this point, particularly, it's becoming much more welcoming as a fandom in some ways, but as a medium and, and like there's more entry points, I think mm -hmm. now. I want to get into an important point in our reading clubs. So we're reading the first five issues of Hawkeye. It's in the collected as Hawkeye, My Life is a Weapon from 2012 through 2015, written by Matt Fraction, art by David Aha and Javier Pulido, colors by Matt Hollingsworth, letters by Chris Eliopoulos and edited by Stephen Wacker, which is included in there because we'll talk about <laughs> old Wacker in a bit. But Joanna, I have 30 seconds I will give you on the clock. I'll give you a countdown and then summary as best you feel. <laughs> okay. You're going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. All right. Starting in three, two, one, go. 
Clint Barton, uh, a.k.a. Hawkeye, who is an Avenger, is living in an apartment building in Bed-Stuy, New York, and uh, he adopts a dog. He hangs out with another Hawkeye known as Kate Bishop, uh, and they go on several heists and adventures. Um, There are arrows involved, of course, but uh, primarily uh, in this first section, there are uh, some villains known as, I think, the tracksuit vampires. Uh, You will just know them by their use of bro and the tracksuits that they wear. Boom. There you go. We got tracksuit vampires in there, (laughs) uh, which is always a ding-dang delight. And one of the things I wanted to to point on and sort of goes back to some of the other points, at the end of issue number five, Matt Fraction takes the letters page and he sort of really encapsulates what the story is to him and to editor Stephen Wacker, that this book is about what Clint does when he's not an Avenger and he can't stop himself from doing good Otherwise, all the things he runs from will catch up with him. The guy with busted knuckles and a split lip that'll help you move your couch anyway. The kind of hero everybody needs in their lives. And I think that's such a a cool perspective that it goes back to exactly what you're saying. If you've seen the movies, it's not quite the same, but it kind of could be. And if you've been reading the comics, it's not always been this sort of Clint, but he could be. And I think that's such a, a fun aspect to what makes this book work so well. Ryan, I think you made such a good point with that letters page and just the general stance that Matt Fraction is coming to this character from. Because one of my favorite things, you know, having read this book a few times over the years, I I just love opening that credits page of issue number one and like the concision with which they just tell you Clint Barton, a.k.a. Hawkeye, became the greatest sharpshooter known to man. He then joined the Avengers This is what he does when he's not being Avenger. That's all you need to know. For credits pages that often can be two or three or four paragraphs long, it's not that they couldn't have done that with this. It's not that they couldn't have gone into the the lore and the backstory and even where Clint Barton is at this point in continuity. So I just think it does say a lot about what they were trying to do in that same way from issue number one, you know, exactly like you, you you pointed out in that in that letters page of saying it's that perfect kind of beautiful everywhere and nowhere comic book thing where like this will fit wherever you want it to fit in continuity and with whatever's going on in the comic book world at this time. Or it could just fit beautifully out of that, out of space, out of time, just in its own little corner of the universe, which is something I love so much. Joanna. Your choice of this book is absolutely surprising that it hadn't been chosen before. I describe this as a modern classic. This is absolutely as respected and beloved by, you know, the most deep comic book pros as it is as like a casual reader, which was part of what makes it so great. Yeah, no, and to your point about it existing wherever you want it to exist. I do love in a comic when you get an asterisk that tells you to, you know, remember this issue, et cetera. Like, that's fun. But what they accomplish in this book, in the second issue of the chunk we're talking about here, there's just a simply a panel 
I think it's just one panel where it's like, this is Kate Bishop. She took over Hawkeye when I was being like a ninja or something. And that's all you need to know. <laughs> Boom. One panel. Moving on. You can go find out if you want, but you don't need to know to be caught up here. And that's that's the thing that like, it can be a tricky balance because it is, all, of course, so rewarding for people who have been at this their entire life or even for a couple of years or a decade or whatever it is to have references and connections and and be feel rewarded for being along for the ride the whole time. But if you can have that and hold a hand out to people who are just meeting this for the first time, that's genius. And that's what I think this book does. And it gives you a Hawkeye, like you immediately know who Clint is in that first issue because they use, and it should be hokey what they use here, which is a save the dog moment, like a save the cat <laughs> moment. They want you to like Clint because he saves his dog and saves all his like neighbors at the same time, but is also so gruff and all this other stuff and just gets pummeled, absolutely pummeled again and again and again. And you just love him. You love him so much. I, I just think it's brilliant. But he's also a yeah. Because he like gets out of the hospital and he's like, all right, I got to get out of here. I got to walk, whatever. And the guy's like, no, 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 no. And he's pushing him in the wheelchair. Click gets out of the wheelchair and he kicks it into traffic, which is such a jerk move. But yeah. you can't help but be like, oh, that Clint. I mean, it's because both exist at the same time. And because that first issue hops back and forth in time. So you get the juxtaposition of his dickishness with his like saving this dog, my dog, you know, sort of stuff. So good. So smart. Joanna, I'm curious for me and you're a writer. So I'm curious if this is the case for you. The first place my head went or goes when I'm reading a book, certainly in years past when I wasn't reading every single comic every week, was the writing. And I would think about, oh, what's, I wonder what this script is like. I wonder what's his process for getting into these characters' heads, yeah. all of those kind of things. First, I would like to know about your thoughts on that. And then I was curious about your journey into the world of comic book art and how you might have read or appreciated David Aha's work in here versus how you see, you know, comic book art differently or if you appreciate it in another way, having, you know, been involved, you know, with comics for a longer period of time. Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned the the script thing because the first thing I did with my dumb, broken writer brain is like, try to write my own comic book script. I was like, how do you do this? You know, and not not with any aspirations at all, just trying to like figure out the animal, right? And so I, I had a friend of mine who's a really good artist. And I was like, should we just try to like, let's try to figure out how this, how this happens? Like, how do you do this? Uh, and what I found out is, you know, you have to be so much more descriptive and precise than I uh, ever really understood. And I know that the relationships between writers and artists are very different um, story to story. And sometimes it's it's more collaborative and sometimes it's more prescriptive and stuff like that. But um, that was really illuminating to me where I was like, oh, I don't just get to write the funny little <laughs> dialogue boxes. I got to I gotta do more than that. So and And then I started seeking out scripts to sort of break it down and see how it works. And then for the art part, I think this five-issue run – is a really good example of that because you've got three issues with David Aha, who is just the perfect partner for this story. And then you've got the two issues that Javier did, and there's nothing wrong with Javier's art. It's great art, but you miss David's art when you're reading those two issues. And in the letter, I think in issue four, 
Um, and something like, hey, you know, David and Javier are going to be alter- alternating so that we can churn this out to meet the demand for it. And that's not what wound up happening. And I don't know exactly what the reaction was or whatever, but I, David wound up doing most of the issues. Javier didn't wind up coming back. And like, for the most part, it's David's art with a few exceptions, one of them being my absolute favorite comic artist of all time is Annie Wu. I am obsessed with her. I think she's incredible. She did this sort of like Kate Bishop side story later in the run. And I think that was a really good match for that. Like when Kate's going off sort of on her own, it's really good to have Annie's art in there for that. Um, but, But I think that that's something that can be jarring for newcomers to the art of comics. You know, for people who are, who are, more familiar with stories where you just follow a character through a straight story, they might get stressed out by the way in which continuity is a little bit flexible sometimes in the comic world. And they might get stressed out when the artist changes. So the look of the character changes and that can be sort of stressful, I think sometimes. And there have been other runs where I'm not at all stressed by that uh, change, but I think in this one, the collaboration between David and Matt is so strong. It's an interesting one art-wise, I think, because it is so, it really does feel so precise. There are so many pages with a huge panel layout, really, really particular angles, reactions, just like crucial moments that I feel like are so well done that maybe to the layman, you would read it and just be like, oh, it's like just come some fun, like scratchy looking kind of comic book art, these big lines. And, you know, it's just kind of fun, does the job. But I really think there is such a level of precision and brilliance here. But what's interesting to think about, and and it weaves perfectly into what you were saying, Joanna, between the the writer and the artist and the collaboration is I, I am curious about who is really who was bringing that to the table? Because it was either Matt Fraction saying like, and we have a cascading group of 12 mini panels with like faces that are reacting to this moment. And in this one, we see this person from this angle and this one, we say, you know, or it's David doing a little bit more Marvel style and just kind of building out the visual language of this book. But it, I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but Someone is bringing that level of particularity and and just hard work to each and every one of these issues, and it's it's it is just a, it's one of those things that I think becomes a more and more rewarding experience. The more you dive into it, the more you read it, the more you look at what you're actually digesting instead of just being blown away by the story, but for the first time, which you know I definitely was. Yeah, and there are so many tiny visual gags like in the corner of panels. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. um, <laughs> one that I sent to a friend of mine this morning. I think it's issue two where Clint's just trying to make coffee for himself, and like he spills his coffee, and he just goes, "Ah, oh, coffee!" Oh, and you just see oh, the coffee, coffee spilled, and it's not even. <laughs> that's not the main point of that panel. It's just like a background joke of that panel. It's so good, or any of the stuff that Pizza Dog is doing. You know, in the corner of most panels is pretty great, or even the way. Clint eats that slice of pizza when he first encounters Lucky. It's yeah. you know, it just feels so New York and so natural. Like he's licking his fingers, he's holding the, the slice. Yeah. I was like, you could do that panel in a hundred different ways. Mm. But the way it's done there is so thoughtful and so smart. It's yeah, you know, I, I keep going back to thinking about Joe Casada, our former editor-in-chief and former, you know, ever he's done so much. And he talked about how even when you have people just talking. 
making sure that there's something, there's some movement, there's something there that draws you in, that gives you that sense of energy or mm. that sense of connection is so important. And it feels so seamless in the way they do it in this book. Yeah. The other thing that I that I wanted to say that I thought was, I will go ahead and, and bring a female perspective to this and say that um, I get my backup when I feel like I'm being pandered to and sort of a like girl power, girls can do it sort of way. And the introduction of Kate Bishop here is so strong because she's just great. And, you know, there's no, because I'm a girl, you don't think I can do it. She's just really insanely competent. She's great. And he loves her, but like also makes it clear that it's not, you know, or at least whatever, it's complicated, but it's not like his one ambition is to sleep with her. He just admires her because she's great. And when he calls her, when he just calls her Hawkeye and she calls him Hawkeye, like there's just something so clean and pure and arms wide open about that, that I just really love. I remember interviewing former Kate Bishop writer Kelly Thompson, current writer extraordinaire, about that exact thing. I think it was for West Coast Avengers where both of these characters appear. And Kelly just went off talking about the magic of these two characters together. For some reason, it's one of those things where uh, if you know these characters, if you you know can get inside their heads, there's just something that works so perfectly. The chemistry it's kind of a weird thing to say for, for a fictional character, but like, it's so there. I, I love looking at it as well as like the kind of children, so to speak, creatively of this series, or at least that's how I kind of read it. Because I, I certainly think of a Kelly Thompson as perfectly in line with this series. I think of Matt Rosenberg, Matt Rosenberg writing Hawkeye in uh, Tales of Suspense as perfectly in line with this series. And, you know, it, I think it, one, it definitely speaks to the universality of this book, but I think it also does speak to how influential this series has been overall. Ryan, I was actually curious for some broader perspective. I see as the Fraction AHA book as the kind of grandfather of it in that way. Are there grandfathers to that grandfather that you can think of, like, for Hawkeye, but 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 maybe just for, like, the kind of space, the genre space that this book is occupying you know, just like whatever you could think of as the hallmarks of this book, you know, it, if it had those forebears. I think a, a lot of it is sort of the the pattern, mm -hmm. the sort of dialogue and the, that thinking. And I think that came along in some of the Ultimates books and Brian Michael Bendis, um, Ed Brubaker, not necessarily with the sort of snappy dialogue here, but just that sort of the groundedness that came along with what Ed was writing. And then you had artists like Steve Epting and some other folks who came in and like the mid 2000s probably brought in a lot of the tonal shifting that some of what you were talking about, Joanna. And, and so how that was changing a little bit, but this one it's quirky and there's always a quirky book that, you know, we'll put out here and there, but it's, it's just so damn good. And a part of it, I think goes to, you of course have these great writers and artists and stuff, but there's the people behind the scenes who you don't really, we don't talk about as much. And Tom Brevoort, who is, uh, you know, one of Marvel's greatest longtime editors, said that, you know, editors, he says, should get none of the credit and take all the blame. But a good editor will put their stamp on a book and you know it's a 
good book when you see their, it's often going to be a good book when you see their name in there. There's some books, and I don't know if you've read Immortal Hulk, Joanna, but it's a humdinger of a book. And the editor on that is Will Moss, who's edited Jason Aaron's Thor. You know, there's a, a hallmark there. And for this book, it's um, Stephen Wacker and Sana Amanath, two people I'm very close with and great friends with, but their editorial choices are so strong. And you read Ms. Marvel. Son is a co-creator of Ms. Marvel. Steve Wacker was like longtime editor of Spider-Man books when, you know, some of my favorite Spider-Man stories of all time. And you feel their fingerprints in here in, and I think in ways that you would see like a great producer, not necessarily the director of something because, you know, the director role is a lot of like what Matt and David are doing on this book, but a great producer can help shape a story, shape a project in really cool ways, of course, like Kevin Feige or, you know, other folks. Do you think about that at all when you when you look at a comic book or that sort of behind the scenes storytelling that goes on with these kind of projects? For me, uh, as a longtime writer of Vanity Fair, like I love my editors. I think editors are hugely important. So I do pay attention to that. And, and, and the same way you pay attention to, it doesn't necessarily have to have a defined title to it. But you know if Kevin Feige has his hand in a, something, you can trust that it's going to be good. That's how I felt. I, I brought up FX earlier. That's how I felt about that era of FX, like John Landgraf, who runs FX. I'm like, if John is pushing a show, I am probably going to be interested in it. Mm-hmm. He just has exquisite taste, gives the best notes, supports the best creatives sort of thing. So, you know, there, there are just these people, Richard Plepper's error at HBO. You know, there are just these people where you're just sort of like, I know that this is in safe hands. And that's enormously valuable. In, the, in that similar vein, I don't know if there were other series that you were considering for coming on the show, but I'm curious just to hear what other books, what other series, whether it's from that era that you were speaking about, that kind of era of change, or more recently, that you would put in a similar, like, if I was now recommending this to someone to then recommend to their significant other, like, this is a can't miss kind of thing. Are there other books that come to mind when you when you think about it like that? I think uh, Bendis's Alias is a huge, huge, huge book. And that's one that people tried to get me to read for years before I finally got, you know, and it was the right book to recommend to me. It was just the wrong time. But like, that was one that people were really going to be like, this is going to be the one, Joanna, is going to get you. <laughs> um, and then, like I said, Squirrel Girl, which is a book that operates on so many levels because it's really friendly for younger readers. But, you know, Ryan North is so funny and Erica's art is so good. And there's just like, there's enough in there to keep you interested, even if you're an older, like more jaded reader, whatever. I think there, if you, if you're open to it, the joy of Squirrel Girl, I think that's like a huge one. You were, you were talking about like grandfathers of this series. And I was thinking about the man without fear, the daredevil comic, like this idea of like a street level hero who is just going to get the stuffing beat out of him for the people in his community. (laughs) You know what I mean? And like Clint, it's interesting because there's the whole Ronin storyline that's referenced in issue number two, but Clint is essentially in this book, the gunslinger that comes to the town to like protect the townspeople, right? Against the like evil crime Lord. It's a classic gunslinger story, (laughs) a reluctant hero ish sort of story, but not because he's going to throw himself into the battle, but he's not, but not like, the way that Steve Rogers would, not like earnestly, you know what I mean? It's just sort of like, <laughs> oh, I guess, I guess it's gotta be me if it's gonna be someone. So right. And so yeah, that that's the kind of story that I really latch on to. 
Um, we've, we've talked about art a bit. I want to make sure we give love to the covers, particularly I'm looking at them in Marvel Unlimited and seeing them sort of thumbnailed here, but just looking through them, most of them are by David Aha, but some are also by Francesco Francavilla, who is wonderful. He has a couple issues in this run as well. Again, it's just so damn smart about how yeah. to package a book. Mm-hmm. You can just like see it out of the corner of your eye and you know exactly what you're looking at. Nothing else looks like it. There's a lot of iconography involved. And then you just started seeing people like wearing their Hawkeye shirts around this time that, you know, had the purple target on it or the like, you know, and it was just in the same way that like Steve Shield or whatever became a thing. Like they they developed a lot of iconography around this series. The lettering on just on Hawkeye and the cover uh, is just incredible. And yeah, on Marvel Unlimited, it looks brilliant and beautiful. Yeah. We don't get into it uh, specifically in this episode too much, but issue number 11, for anybody who hasn't read this run yet, please do. Read all 22 issues, but get ready for 11. 11 yeah. is is the issue that focuses on Lucky, aka Arrow, aka Pizza Dog, and it's just beautiful. In your role as senior writer for Vinny Fair, I'm, I'm curious, I, I guess I, I keep going back to this thing of like, your position as as an arbiter of of these things as someone who speaks to what makes something great someone who speaks to what makes something you know maybe just miss i'm curious in general not just comics but in whatever media you might be consuming i just would like to hear your thoughts about if you ever get jaded with that if it's ever tough to dive back into a new thing if the special things are made more special by that or less special by that and relating that to this comic that we're reading which you know as you know as it came out it was just another comic a great comic for sure but for some reason it's lived on to be you know spoken about and thought of as this brilliant piece of work so many years later and I think will continue to grow in stature I was curious to hear your thoughts on all that Yeah um that's an interesting question this career of mine, this writing podcasting career that I have is very much a second career because my first career was as a bookseller. And so when I started in this world of writing about film and television full time was around that like 2011, 2010 sort of time. And it was a very different cultural landscape. And there was just way less We have way more, TV-wise at least, we have just way more. And everyone is much more into the binge model. So we're not doing that sort of slow week-to-week chewing through stuff like that, with the exception of, you know, Marvel television, et cetera, which I love. That's something that I absolutely – I'm so pleased with that choice. It probably makes your job a little easier too, right? (laughs) I mean, it sounds selfish when I talk about it, but (laughs) I try to separate that from the fact that, like, it disappoints me when something drops in a binge – And people are watching it at a different pace, so we can't all talk about it together. You know, I love – I do podcasts about TV all the time, and I love the weekly appointment viewing where we can just really dig into a series, especially if it's something, you know, like WandaVision where you get really – like have a fun time with trying to figure out what's going on and the theories and stuff like that. It's just, I think, a deeper way to engage with a text, with a story. And you guys know this as comic readers. I mean, talk about a slow burn. Like, that's what comics are, right? There, It's a double-edged sword. You know, the, this idea of peak TV that we talk about a lot that John Landgraf of FX coined. But um, 
there's benefits to it, which means a lot more people are getting to create stories, which means we're getting a lot more diverse voices. And that is hugely important to me. There's a part of me that doesn't want to say like, make TV 2011 again, because that was just stories <laughs> about like white male antiheroes, which are great. And I love them, but I want more than that. Right. <laughs> so I don't want to say that, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, can we keep the diverse perspectives, but just slow down and all agree to watch something together. You know, we talk about the monoculture and the end, like Thrones being the last, potentially last big TV. But then like, you know, Disney Plus and Marvel and and Lucasfilm are coming through with some stuff that are really capturing people's imagination. So I'm hopeful for that. So yeah, I wouldn't say jaded, just, I don't know, fractured, Matt, Matt mm. fractured. <laughs> <laughs> are you someone who, in that same vein, are you someone that, will dive into a story beat or even in your own head, I'm not even talking professionally now, just go like, oh, if only they made this choice instead of that choice. Is that an instinct that comes to mind for you? A, a thousand percent. And here's, and here's what I'll say about that. I will say that my absolute favorite thing is to compare the written source material to the final filmed product, because then you can see active choices being mm -hmm. made, right? In the cuts or additions. I don't do it to say, oh, the book was better. Oftentimes the book was better. But like, you know, I don't do it to say that. I do it to say this additive thing is a really smart, great move. I love that they added this. That's great. Or it's really a shame that they lost this because I think this was a really valuable thing. Or this thing that works so well on the page, this voiceover, this whatever it is, this internal monologue, they didn't figure out a way to make that translate to the screen. And so I find that a really valuable compare contrast tool to try to drill down on what exactly it is that slightly missed the mark when something missed the mark. Because usually if they're adapting something, a book or a comic book or whatever the case may be, if, if they're adapting something, that's usually something that's been enormously successful, that has a built-in audience, that that is a story that has landed with people. And if it doesn't land on the screen, that means there was an adaptive choice made that didn't work. And that to me is always fascinating. Um, last thing I wanted to talk about, we've, we've hit on it a little bit, is the timelessness of this book. It can exist whenever, except there, there issues four and five, you know, we bring in S.H.I.E.L.D. and there's, you know, a very specific time frame that they work in. Uh, but the, the other thing that sort of like sparked it as a very specific time was in the letter in issue number five, the letters pages, in which Matt Fraction writes the, you know, covers it because... Steve and Sana were here in New York, and we it was going to press days after Superstorm Sandy hit. And I was just thinking, like, man, comics never stop. I was coming back from Australia from the set of The Wolverine and got stuck in California because I couldn't get home because of the storm. But I remember, like, my former co-host on this show recorded the episode in his car because he couldn't get to the office. The folks in publishing were still putting out comics. It's just fascinating to me thinking about the ways in which art is made and how it's seen. And you don't even think about it. You know, I didn't even realize nine years later that that's the <laughs> that was sort of the setting of the the final ways that this went it made its way into people's hands, which is it's real neat. It is really neat. And it's really neat also when you can think about the ways in which those things seep into a story. It's interesting to look at, you know, 
the the books and the movies and you're like Bush era, Obama era, Trump era, what is what is happening with the stories there? And that's a very American centric point of view. But like, you know, what is happening with our culture and what is happening with the stories? You know, not to say anything is making a direct reference to anything, but it just is in the groundwater of these creatives is what they're consuming. I was just thinking the other day about um I live in the in the Bay Area of, of California, Northern California. And, uh, you know, we had a day last year when the sky turned orange and it was really weird. It was so, <laughs> so weird. But I went to work anyway. I wrote things on that day, you know what I mean? And, and they will forever be the things that I wrote the day the sky turned orange. That's such a good point. Also good, um, maybe good book title. The day the sky turned orange? <laughs> For the future, just follow that one. Away. <laughs> Joanna, thank you again so much for talking to us about all of these things. I am so deeply delighted to have you on the show and to hear your perspectives on this book and the broader media cultural world. Thanks, Joanna. Thank you. Thank you once more to Joanna Robinson for talking to us about Hawkeye. I hope that so many more people will be picking that story up, whether it's in collection, whether it's reading it on Marvel Unlimited. I'm just so excited for the love it's been getting. And so thanks once more to Joanna for joining us. Yeah. All right, that wraps it up. Hope you all have great, happy holidays if you're celebrating. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And Brad was really excited. Everybody's hyped about Rogers the Musical. So Brad was like, I'm going to go one step further. I'm going to write Tracksuit Vampires. The musical. So he's been working on this tracksuit vampires, the musical thing for a little while now. Um, I will say the big showstopper bro is going to be something really, really cool. It's a tap dance number. Just beautiful stuff with Brad Barton, folks, the voice of an angel. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.